Hopefully you've all got your notes out there on the table. As you can see, we're going to have one of our padded sword drills today. Got a lot of scripture to cover. I think there are only about 23 or something like that passages. Um, so we're going to have to move at a pretty fast clip, which is why I like for you to have an outline of what I'm doing with all the scriptures there. Um, boy, do I feel the need for the Lord's enabling grace. So I would like to pray once more for that. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your great love for us. I thank you that those of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior need not fear the future. You are always with us, Lord Jesus, as you promised, even to the end of the age. Thank you for that reminder. And I pray now, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and with understanding as we seek to understand better how to apply your word, especially in such a culturally relativistic age as we live in, an age much more like the first century world in which the church was born each and every passing day. Sadly, however, in some ways our culture is even worse than that culture, and we just need to know how to live in it. It's our prayer, Lord, that you'll help us as a result of this teaching and next week's teaching to just be better at applying your word and living as we should. We ask these things for your glory and for our good and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You'll recall that over the past couple of weeks I've taught on a couple of issues concerning church practice, uh, church membership and tithing and whether or not what the Bible has to say about those things. And, um, and as I did so, uh, I think you saw that we were required to think a bit more deeply about how we assess whether or not a particular point of view or practice is biblical. And, and many of the principles and, and uh, parameters I was using in those two messages I'm going to bring out more today uh, and, the, and next week as well. And this, so this week I want to start this two-part series Believe it or not, it started off as one message, but you can see just from the first three of these, there was no way a fourth point that was five more pages was going to get done today. So it's a two-part uh, series, and I, it seeks to focus even more on this issue. How do we determine whether or not a practice is biblical or not? How do we go about it? Um, in answer to this question, I'd like to suggest four parameters for determining whether a practice is biblical, and I'll do this under four main headings. Biblical prescriptions, biblical prohibitions, biblical precedents, and then finally, biblical principles, which we'll get to in more depth next week, where we'll talk about general rules of the word and, and uh, necessary inference in more detail. But today we'll focus on these first three, beginning with biblical prescriptions. Uh, And here we mean that a practice should certainly be considered biblical if we have a biblical prescription to do it. That is, if we have a positive command to do something. That's another way of putting it, positive command. The two greatest commandments, of course, are included in this category. Remember when Jesus was confronted, what he said, that's in Matthew 22, 
uh, verses 34 through 39, we're told that the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. And it's always a good thing when you can silence the Sadducees. Um, they gathered together, and then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. From Deuteronomy 6.5. This is the first and greatest commandment. It was then and it still is. So we we should never wonder, right, and we never would, whether or not it's biblical to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind. The second, he said, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There he's referring to Leviticus 19.18. And of course, these two commandments are also enjoined upon the church. And these two commandments, in one way or another, cover all the commandments that we have as Christians. All the things that we're supposed to do or not do fall under, really, whether or not it's loving God or loving your neighbor properly at the end of the day. As I often say, and I've said many, many times over the last 30-plus years, uh, life is about relationships, period. If you want to know what life is about, that's it. It's about relationships. Relationship with God and with other people. And come judgment day, that is all, all that will matter. Your relationship with God and with other people. So that comes right out of these two great commandments, right? And uh, these two great commandments really set the tone for all of life. Additional examples of other such prescriptions involving church practices, and here we get into more detail about how you love God and love your neighbor, right? Uh, would be proclaiming the gospel and baptizing believers. We have this in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus came in one of his post-resurrection appearances and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then Matthew has to put an amen there, right? Truly, he says. Now, there are some people who have said, well, this command is really given to the apostles. It's their job really to do that. This isn't for Christians. Except that they miss this one thing. In the command itself is the command that they teach disciples to observe all the things I've commanded you. Right? Well, that if he commanded these things to them and said to command people to do all I've commanded you, then sharing the gospel is something we all must do. So no matter how you slice it, that's a command for every believer. Right? A positive command. A prescription for everyone of us who know the Lord. Also, we shouldn't be surprised that we're commanded, for example, to examine ourselves when partaking of the Lord's Supper, another ordinance which was commanded by our Lord Jesus. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often 
as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, Paul is assuming when he's delivered these, this uh, ordinance to the church in Corinth, and you know from the context, this is something that they were regularly taking part in, although badly. Remember, Paul had to correct them. He said, it's really not the Lord's Supper that you're coming to partake of when you're mistreating it the way you do. Um, and so he had to correct them on this. But the very assumption throughout that passage is that this is something they should have done. Right? It's taken as a command of the Lord. And therefore it must be taken very seriously and done in the way that the Lord said to do it. And for the reasons the Lord said to do it. And in fact, Paul sees it as a part of the way that we proclaim the gospel until the Lord Jesus returns. But then he says, therefore whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner as many of them had been doing, will be guilty of the blood, body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we have an ordinance of the Lord that's commanded, but we also have the right way to do it commanded. The right attitude with which we should partake of the Lord's Supper is commanded as well. Christians shouldn't be in any doubt about any of these things because we have positive commands. But, of course, partaking the Lord's Supper together requires that we meet together. A practice that we're also commanded not to forsake, which amounts to commandment to do it. In Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, talking to Hebrew Christians who were being persecuted, though not to the point of death at this point, but they had lost a great deal and were suffering. One of the things that Christians who are under attack and being persecuted might be tempted to do is to stop meeting together. And apparently that had begun to happen. Because, you know, it's dangerous to meet together. You're easier to find. You're easier to persecute. It takes courage. And so he says in Hebrews 10, beginning verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. So notice the context here. We're commanded here to hold fast confession of our hope without wavering recognizing that our Lord is faithful to us that's what will enable us to hold fast our confession but we're never going to be able to hold fast our confession without wavering if we don't meet together that's the assumption of what he says next and let us consider one another in order to stir up and uh, love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, the assumption here is that not only uh, is it a bad thing not to meet together uh, as, you, as you see the day approaching, and as in this case persecution gets more and more fierce, not only is it a bad thing to forsake assembling together, in fact, you should try to assemble even more would be the idea. Of course, many of you know who were here at the time when we went through the shutdown for COVID, at the very beginning, the elders said to the congregation, this can only be very temporary for us because we have a command to meet together. And that command isn't only when it's really safe. In fact, it's given in a context which assumes people could be killed for meeting together. Although they hadn't resisted the bloodshed yet, It was close at hand, potentially. And so we said, we're not going to be able to do this for long because we have this command of the Lord we have to follow. So we're trying to balance the biblical commands, right, to love our neighbor, 
right? And to meet together, and we said, we'll do this very temporarily. And then it doesn't matter what the government says. It doesn't matter what the danger is. We're going to follow the Lord and trust him and do what he says. And so we did, before a lot of churches did, actually. Well, this is why. We have a positive command here. And if you say, if you issue a positive command, do not forsake, right? A command, do not forsake assembling together is the same thing as assemble together. Of course, we knew they they did that on the Lord's Day, as we'll see. These are just a few things, a small handful of things uh, prescribed for us as Christians, things we're commanded to do with respect to one another as Christians or as part of being a Christian. But we're also given many prescriptions or positive commands with respect to the unbelieving world around us. As we've seen already, we're commanded to love our neighbors and to share the gospel with them. In addition, however, other examples would apply to our current culture. Uh, This would include a command to love our enemies. I don't know if you've sensed it yet. If, If you haven't begun to sense it, I'm wondering if you've had your head under a rock or something, but uh, this is becoming a more difficult culture to live in as a Christian every day. And it's becoming more dangerous for us every day. We are saying things that portion of the people around us who seem to have the loudest voices at the moment despise. They are our enemies, not because they hate us personally, Most of them don't know us. But because they hate the one we serve. They hate Christ without even knowing because they hate what he says. They hate the idea that someone would say homosexuality is a sin, for example. They're not just slightly annoyed by it. They despise it. For example. And so we have enemies And many of them, if they could, would silence us. And some of them are trying. Now, how do we react? Well, we do what Jesus said in Matthew 5, beginning verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was the way that the pharisaical parsing of the law went in Jesus' day. Well, surely it's... Surely we we can change the command to love your neighbor to mean just the people it's easier to love, and that way we can do it, right? But we can hate our enemy. And then you could parse further and come up with all categories of enemies that you can hate and be left with almost no one left that you really have to love by the time you're done with all this kind of Clintonian parsing of the verbiage, right? That's anachronistic, pharisaical parsing of, of the verbiage, but you know what I mean. And, uh, but Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. These are ways that God shows his love to people. So he says, he's commanding us to love our enemies. And he even describes the worst of enemies. People who hate you and curse you. To curse someone is to wish them to be eternally condemned. Damned to hell, basically. That's the idea behind cursing in this context. And persecute you. Yep, love them too. 
In a similar vein, there's a command that we do good to all. In Galatians 6, 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says, And let us not grow weary in a while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, we have a special obligation. I taught on this not too many weeks back to the household of faith, to our fellow believers. But we have an obligation to everyone to do good to them. And that, that isn't the same thing as, as just avoiding doing anything bad, right? We want to try to do good to others, to everyone that we can, in every way we can. That's the assumption Paul is making. So these are just a handful of examples of the many biblical prescriptions we have that govern our lives as Christians. Yet there are not just things that we must do as Christians. There are also things we must not do. And that leads to our next major heading, biblical prohibitions. You see, just as we know with certainty that ministry practice or point of view is biblical, if we have a positive command in the Bible to do it, we know just as certainly that a ministry practice is not biblical if we have a prohibition in the Bible against it. One example of such a prohibition with respect to church practices would be women teaching or have a, having authority over men in the churches. The Apostle Paul clearly says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. With respect to teaching, he means, right, in the context. He doesn't mean that women are never allowed to talk in church. He's talking about teaching here. Now, I, I use that example. There are others we could, could use. In fact, the next example I'm going to use would apply to the church as well as to the culture around us. Um, but I picked this one because this is a particularly uh, controversial one in many quarters of professing evangelical Christianity today. Uh, there, are, there are churches that want to have women pastors, for example, well, we know that is not biblical because there's a specific prohibition against it. We could also look at a lot of biblical principles that would have told us that, right? But here we have a prohibition. And, uh, you know, of course, to try to get around it, uh, some people try to say that Paul didn't really mean what he seems like he's saying that he meant and so forth. But, you know, my response is, well... This is one of actually clear statements in the Bible. If you can make this statement obscure, well, then you, you need an award in Pharisaism. <laughs> you know, right? <clears throat> Another example with respect to our current culture, because I'm trying to not just focus on things that pertain just to the church, but to our relationship to the culture at large. But this one kind of does double duty, because not only are there women pastors in some churches, there are also gay pastors. There are actually people saying that you can be a gay Christian. And of course, if they meant a happy Christian, then everybody should be one of those. But of course, they don't mean that, right? They mean a homosexual Christian, and that's an oxymoron. But that's an example. Homosexual sin. There's no doubt the Bible clearly prohibits such behavior. And there's a number of texts that make this clear. It's part of the Old Testament law. For example, in Leviticus 18.22, he says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And an abomination is something that God hates. Right? Of 
course, we know the classic text in Romans 1, 24 through 28, and, uh, that describes the sin of man because they rejected God and God's response to it, his response of judgment, is the more they wanted to go away from him, the more he sort of let go the leash and let them go away from him. They wanted life without him, God gave it to them. Uh, And we've seen this cycle in our own culture, the very same thing happening. In Romans 1, beginning verse 24, we're told that therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I said that you could see this in our culture. And people say, well, the people in our culture don't worship the creature. We don't have idols of, you know, gods, you know, made in the image of man and so forth, like they did in, in the first century. Well, secular humanism is worshiping the creature. It's worship, worshiping human reason above all other things. So it's hard to make a statue of human reason, right? But, but it's still an idol nonetheless. He goes on to say, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Paul's describing what was happening in the Greco-Roman culture all around him. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over, three times it says that, to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now, it's not hard to see. If this is the example of a culture that's under the judgment of God, it is not hard to see that that's what's happening in America, and it has been for a while. Only... We're worse than the Greco-Roman culture because we actually live in a culture that tries to say that men aren't even men and women aren't even women. They weren't so foolish as to do that. We have a culture in which two women can marry each other, two men can marry each other. They weren't so far gone that they did that. So it's easy to look back at that culture and see how horrible it was. Our culture is worse. It's pretty hard to be worse than the Greco-Roman culture of the first century. It's not an achievement you want to aspire to. It's happening in our culture. It's happening in quote-unquote churches. It's vile despicable thing it's an abomination God hates it there are prohibitions clear prohibitions against such things when we get into biblical principles next week we'll talk about the gender issue more then just in case we haven't gotten the point there's 1 Corinthians 6 9 through 10 do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. There are two different words they could use to describe homosexuality in the first century Greek. And actually, scholars think that one of the words 
refers to the actor and one to the more passive partner in this, and that they actually had different words for that. And that's why Paul uses both of them here, but it both refers to homosexuality. In fact, the ESV just combines them in a summary statement, nor men who practice homosexuality. It's Paul's being all-inclusive. No matter how you slice it, this is wrong. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul has got in mind here people who think they can call themselves Christians and live like this. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about people who fall into a sin and stumble and repent. He's talking about people that say, you know, I can be a Christian and be an extortioner. That's how I make my living. No. You can't do that. Well, I can be a Christian being homosexual, practicing homosexual. It's the way I was born. No! <laughs> you can't do that. In fact, Paul will tell them, such were some of you, <laughs> meaning you, you don't have to be that way anymore in Christ. In 1 Timothy 1, 8, 8-10, he lists it again, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Sadly, even many people today, as I've said, who profess to be Christians, ignore such prohibitions. They try to explain them away. They try to take simple statements of Scripture and tell you that they're complicated. And that only, you know, real scholars who really know the languages can understand these things. As though every translation of the Scriptures for the past 2,000 years didn't ever understand these terms, right? Only these modern scholars in liberal universities who understand the complexities of things, you see. It, it takes a degree from Harvard or Yale probably to make simple things com- so complex that nobody can understand them, right? But these are simple statements. These are not hard to understand. Everybody Paul was writing to it. Everybody in this room knows exactly what's being said here. These things are prohibited. If I sound a little uh, strong in my statement of it, how, how strong should we sound, the sound when we talk about something that God hates, that he calls an abomination? Should we talk like it's, you know, like jaywalking? Speeding? It's no big deal. No. God hates it, and we should hate it too. Thank God he loves the people who, uh, who are caught up in all these sins enough to save them. But he has no room for people who want to call themselves Christians and pretend that these things are acceptable when he says they're not. So that's biblical prohibitions. We've seen biblical precedents. How about biblical... Or a biblical uh, prescriptions or positive commands. We'll look at biblical precedents next. And this is another way we can discern whether or not a practice is biblical. We look to see if there's a biblical precedent. And by this, I don't mean just that something was done in the Bible. I mean that it was done with the approval of God. 
So we may refer to these as approved examples that we ought to follow. Uh, Now, of course, there are also unapproved examples in the Bible as well. And I'll just give you a summary statement that Paul makes with regard to these. There are plenty of examples of how not to be in the Bible and that we know something is not biblical if it's an unapproved example, right? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into the Moses into the cloud, or in the cloud and in the sea. He's talking about when God led the people of Israel in the exodus out of Egypt and part of the Red Sea, right? And led them ultimately to the promised land, although they spent 40 years in the wilderness. He says they all ate the same spiritual food. They're probably thinking of manna, but that was simply representative of, right, God's word. Um, and Moses was teaching them. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, and that's referring to Exodus 32.6, what was going on when they made the golden calf, I believe. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain if some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And he said, don't follow bad examples. We've been given bad examples as warnings of what not to do. And he even goes into some details about what they're bad examples of and what happens to people, right, who follow that bad example. Well, we're going to focus our attention on positive examples, on approved examples this morning, uh, recognizing that we have both unapproved and approved examples in the Bible and that we can look at those things and see what not to do, but also what to do. Um, So again, our focus will be on the approved examples. We should expect that there will be many, especially when we remember uh, what the Apostle Paul said to the Philippian believers. And he said things like this a number of times, imitate me as I also imitate Christ and so forth. But he says in Philippians 4.9, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me. He's talking about his own example. These do and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul saw as a part of it, apostolic ministry, the example he was to set for others to follow. So that, that's the very idea that I'm talking about. We ought to follow approved examples. And we ought not follow unapproved examples, things that God doesn't like. Right? And this is one of the ways we can tell whether or not something is biblical. We don't just look for, is there a clear command or prohibition? And some people like to stop there. They don't really, in practice, stop there. But we look for are there examples in the Bible that are held up to us as good things to do? Yeah, there are lots. Um, one of 
the approved examples that might come to the mind of many of us would be that of the Berean Christians. About how, about how, whom, excuse me, Luke says in Acts 17.11, these were more fair-minded, I think the NSB is better, noble-minded. In other words, these, these are the kinds of believers you should be like and not like the ones in Thessalonica, right? Or at least the people there who initially heard the word. These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. When they heard teaching that was telling them Christ is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies and so forth, and he's the Messiah, they listened, ready to believe, ready to hear everything that they heard, but they also looked into the scriptures for themselves. Well, Paul said that this is, that's exactly what he, he's right, you know. And they came to their own conclusions through the scriptures. And they're presented here as the way people ought to be. That this is a good way to be. And so that's why there are churches that actually have taken the name, Berean Bible Church and so forth. Why? Because of this positive example, this approved example in scripture. This is how we should all be. And that's what Luke is letting us know when he tells us about them. Another such example would be the practice of meeting on Sundays. I don't know of a command in the New Testament that says meet on Sundays. Or a commandment that says don't meet on any other day but Sunday or something like that. But we do know that's what they did. We have some indications of that. We have an indication later on. Uh, in Revelation, it was even referred to as the Lord's Day by the end of the first century. In Acts 20, verse 7, we're told that you know, Paul here is in Troas. Uh, now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, and many people think that that's a reference uh, to the Lord's Supper as a regular part of their time together, as such as it was in Corinth, right? Um, it refers to Jesus took bread and he broke it, gave it to the disciples. And so many scholars think that that's what's being referred to here, not just getting together for a meal, right? Although it would seem, if you look at the example in Corinth, that they tended to do both. But we're told on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So apparently they met on the first day of the week, and that's the time when they would hear a message. They would break bread and hear a message. Well, that's what we call our Sunday worship, right? And uh, they were doing it on the first day of the week. Paul clearly approved of this. Uh, he didn't come into the meeting and say, what are you doing meeting today? You know uh, that our tradition amongst the Jews is to meet on Saturday. Nope. The first day of the week was fine with Paul. Why, what do you think that would probably be? Well, if you go back into church history, the common assumption is because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and that's what we're celebrating, our new life in him. So, of course, we're going to meet on that day, right? This appears to also be assumed that this is the day that we're meeting in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, where we're told, remember, uh, they were collecting, as we looked at last week when we talk about tithing and principles of giving and so forth. There was a collection being taken amongst the, the churches in Macedonia and Greece and uh, 
that was going to be taken back to the starving saints in Jerusalem who were in poverty, largely because of their faith they were in poverty. Um, and that's what he's talking about here. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. Why did he stress the first day of the week? Because that's when they got together. Right? That's when they could collect the money. So that's why we meet on the first day of the week to this day, because of this biblical precedent, this approved example. It doesn't dawn on us to meet on another day for our regular meetings, but rather to follow the example of the early church that seems to be an approved example by the apostles. Another example of such a precedent would be the inclusion of children in the worship gatherings of the church. And I mentioned this some weeks back, and I'm mentioning it again here today because there are a lot of churches that almost act like this is a crime, that they're going to usher your kid off somewhere else during church, and that's that, and, and they make it very difficult for you to even resist that notion, uh, sadly. And so it's enough of an issue that I think it's something that needs to be focused on a little bit. And I think this is obvious, for instance, in that the Apostle Paul assumed that children would be present with their parents at church gatherings when he included instructions for them in his epistles. For example, in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you. You may live long on the earth. In a parallel text in Colossians 3.20, it says essentially the same thing. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. The assumption is that when this letter is read publicly to the church, children will be present. And here we're getting into something we'll talk more about next week, the idea of necessary inference. Right? Um, now, we know that such epistles were expected to be publicly read when the church gathered for worship because Paul assumes that will be happening. In fact, later in Colossians 4.16, he says, Now when this epistle is read among you, when would that happen? Well, as we've seen, the first day of the week when they get together would be the likely time that would happen. When it's read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So apparently, Paul had also written an epistle that we no longer have to Laodicea that he wanted them to share with the Colossians. So we have the idea here that there's the public reading of Scripture as it was being written by the apostles, and that there was also the idea that churches were sharing these. But for our purposes this morning is this, once again, Paul assumes children will be there. And that, it seems to me, is an assumed common practice by Paul. And so I, I would say that we have a biblical precedent, a biblically approved example to follow here of having our children present with us in our gatherings as well. Now, I'm not going to say a church that has a children's church is sinning. I don't know that I'd go that far. Unless they're saying to us, there's something wrong with you having children in the adult service. I would call that sinning if they tell us that. Because we have a biblically approved example we're following. 
Now imagine this. They say, well, children can't understand these difficult things. Imagine, imagine being in the church where, in Rome with all your children present when the epistle to the Romans was read. How much do you think children would get out of that? My answer is as much as God wants them to. But even if they didn't understand most of it, they would learn how to hear the word with their parents. And they would learn that the word of God isn't something different for them than it is for their parents. There are other lessons that could be learned that I won't get into. I will just say this. Uh, We have our children in our services for this very reason. And as they grow, they take in more and more. And it's one of the reasons, as I've said in the past, that we do the, the worship services the way we do them, where we begin, we're coming up on that season soon, to focus on the coming birth of Christ, and then we go through the whole life of Christ in our services. And then the doctrines of grace, and we go also through the doctrines of God and the nature and the attributes of God, and we focus, and then the second coming, and then we focus our, ser- our services on the life of Christ, the gospel, who is God, Jesus is coming again. Why do we do that? Every year we go through the same cycle. Well, part of the reason is we have our children in our services, and by the time they're adults, they'll have heard the life of Jesus, the doctrines of God, and the doctrines of grace every Sunday while they're growing up. And more and more of it will take. So we do care that our children are here. Um, But my point here is that there's nothing wrong with that. There's actually apparently something quite good about that. Now as we again turn our attention to the Christian's interaction with the wider culture, I think we would do well to consider Paul's example of asserting his rights under the law when it served the purposes of the gospel to do so. I picked this as an example. There are a number of things we could look at probably, but I picked this as an example because we are a culture that cares about rights. God-given rights, as the Declaration of Independence, I think correctly puts it, that we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. And uh, because we're made in the image of God is the assumption there, based on biblical principles. So we care a lot about rights. So let's look at at Paul's example. He was a Roman citizen who had rights that other people didn't have who weren't Roman citizens. What did he think about his rights? Whether he called them that or not, it's the same thing we call rights. Let's talk about it. On at least one occasion, he only partially asserted his rights. Remember, he was in Philippi, and He had cast a spirit of divination out of a slave girl and as a result had cost her owners the profit that they'd made from her. Um, And so they brought a complaint against Paul to the magistrates of the city. And the magistrates then had both Paul and Silas, who was with him, teaching the same things Paul was teaching. He had them stripped, beaten, thrown into prison, and even had uh, their feet placed in stocks. You know, these dangerous criminals, right? Of course, we all know what followed, namely that God brought an earthquake to free them and that rather than leave, they could have escaped. They stayed and preached the gospel to the Philippian jailer and his family. 
all of whom were saved as a result. So we know one of the reasons they decided to stay was to proclaim the gospel to the jailer and his family. But there was another reason they decided to stay. It had to do with their rights as Roman citizens, as it turns out. It would seem. And we'll pick up on the account the next morning after all that happened, all that wonderful stuff that happened uh, the night before, the Philippian jailer and his family coming to Christ and being baptized. We'll pick up in Acts 16.35. We, we read that when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go, referring to Paul and Silas. So the keeper of the prison, who is now a Christian, or the, I'm assuming it's the same guy as the jailer, reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly. Uncondemned Romans. Ah, Romans had rights. They couldn't be beaten without charges having been brought and a sentence having been passed under the law. Other people could be beaten and mistreated. Rome didn't care. Roman citizens could not be treated that way. And so he said, uncondemned Romans, and they've thrown us into prison. And now, do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. They were responsible for illegally putting us here. Now we want them to come out in front of everyone and let us go. Why is he doing this? I think we can surmise why, but we'll finish reading what happened. And the officers told these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. See, if, if you did this to a Roman citizen who was uncondemned, you could be in prison or even killed. This was a serious offense these magistrates had committed, whereas Paul and Silas had done nothing wrong at all. Justice would have been for these magistrates to be tried and sentenced themselves for violating the rights of Roman citizens. What we would call a violation of rights, anyway. It's clearly what happened. And so what did they do? They, they came and pleaded with them. You can imagine what the pleadings were. Please don't get us in trouble. We didn't know. Well, they should, they should have asked, Right? They pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. Just, they don't want to have anything to do with them anymore, right? And the trouble that there is in their city because of them. Now, although Paul could have fully asserted he and Silas's rights because it tells us that they were both Romans, even to the point of having those city magistrates punished or possibly killed, Paul clearly was not after vengeance. Um and was willing even to forgo the justice that was due him as a Roman citizen and, and due Silas as a Roman citizen. Why didn't he do that? Well, apparently his only desire was that the magistrates release them in a fashion which demonstrated their innocence. Right? He just didn't want their reputation to be that they actually committed a crime. But he wasn't going after, he didn't care about justice in this instance. He cared about the gospel, about his testimony, and the testimony of Silas, and probably wanted to come back there someday, right? (laughs) 
and have a good relationship with these magistrates. There's probably lots of reasons, but they were all gospel reasons, it would seem. That's why he stayed overnight. That's part of the reason, it would seem. So he had rights, but he didn't feel he had to assert them. He was even willing to forego his rights if it meant, right, more open door for the gospel, it would seem. Now, on another occasion, Paul made full use of his rights as a Roman citizen under Roman law by appealing to Caesar. Um, and this is the later on in Acts 25, where uh, Luke tells us, you remember what happened here, uh, at the behest of the Jews in Jerusalem, Paul was arrested. I think the Jews would like to have tried him themselves, and that wasn't going to happen, right? And, and so he was turned over to the, to the Romans, and he eventually appeared before Festus, who was the procurator. In fact, it would seem he was a, new, a relatively new procurator of Judea, as I understand it. And Luke tells us that, beginning Acts 25, the latter part of verse 6, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? What he's saying is, I'll still be your judge, but we'll go to Jerusalem and do it. And we know he wanted to do a favor to the Jews. What do you think is really going to happen? A kangaroo court where the Jews get their way is what's going to happen, right? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, reminding, reminding Festus he doesn't work for the Jews, he works for Caesar. That's his subtle, not so subtle reminder, right? I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. So he's calling Festus on this. Pretense. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Only a Roman citizen could do that. And then Festus, when he conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. And of course we know that was a long and difficult journey to get there. And he finally made it and was under house arrest. Now, these examples demonstrate that it is perfectly acceptable for Christians to assert their rights under whatever government that they live according to the providence of God. We happen to live in the United States of America. But we also see that Christians must always consider their witness to the gospel as of paramount importance. Most Americans would tell you there's nothing more important than their rights. If Paul were here today, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he would say there's nothing more important than the gospel, than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and serving him faithfully. And if that means foregoing your rights, then that's what you do. 
That almost sounds like blasphemy to say that in America, doesn't it? But we have precedents here that teach us important lessons. We should, yeah, I took an oath to, you know, when I joined the military, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I believe that oath is still binding on me. There's a Bill of Rights in there, right, that I've sworn to defend. But my duty to God comes before that. And so does yours. On the other hand, I can't imagine a situation where we would need to forego our rights as Christians. It seems to me like the best thing that we could do for the gospel these days is to assert our rights as American citizens. So thankfully those things go together. But what if they don't? Well, sometimes maybe we forego our rights. But sometimes we have to resist the government. In fact, there are clear biblical precedents in this regard as well. Uh, precedents which demonstrate that civil disobedience is not only permissible, but even necessary at times. And here we'll just consider the examples in our last couple of passages of the apostles in this regard. Uh, the book of Acts reports their response to the governing authorities when they were commanded to stop preaching the gospel. And, th- and their response is instructive. In Acts 4, verses 18 through 20, we're told that they called them and commanded them not to speak. And here we're talking about they came before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. By the way, the Roman government gave them a lot of latitude to govern themselves under Jewish law and so forth. And they called uh, the apostles and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now he's, he's, he's uh, stating a principle. He, he knows that as Jewish religious leaders, they ought to agree with. They ought to agree that it's more important to listen to God than any human authority. So the apostles refused to obey uh, a command of the governing authority in this case when it was in conflict with the command of God. Just as they did again later under similar circumstances as we're told in chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. That's because they kept saying that you... You, as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, you with your lawless hands have crucified the Savior, the Messiah. Uh, well, that's what they're referring to here. You keep saying we killed him, you know. Um, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And of course, there are other scriptural examples of civil disobedience. When I talked about Christian patriotism some months back, I mentioned them. There's the Hebrew midwives, remember, in ancient Egypt. We read about them in Exodus 1, where they refused to follow the commands and save the babies, Moses being one of them. 
There's the example of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in ancient Babylon, and most of you will remember them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's in Daniel 3. They were thrown into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't obey an ungodly command. Then there's Daniel in Persia, where he prayed even though he was told not to. All such approved examples offer clear precedents for us to follow of civil disobedience. Whenever, it doesn't matter what government any Christian is under at any time or in any place, whenever that human authority, that human government, demands that you disobey God, you disobey the government. But notice that the apostles practice civil disobedience in accordance with a principle. Namely, that God's authority is higher than any human authority, and that it must always take precedence when these two authorities come into conflict. So we could have dealt with this issue next week when we talk about biblical principles as a parameter for determining what's biblical. And here we have an example, right, of the apostles applying a principle that could be derived from the scripture, right, for determining what it was right to do in that situation. Uh, For now, we're just going to take notice of the fact that the parameters that I'm giving you here, they overlap, right? And, uh, of course, they will always coincide with one another. They'll always agree with one another and never contradict one another because if if they are indeed biblical, they couldn't possibly contradict one another. So we're we're not surprised to find overlap. And all these principles together should fit into a nice whole. At any rate, I hope you found the three parameters that we've dealt with this, this morning so far helpful. Um, I've gone over a lot of things you probably already know. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably already been doing this. What, I'm, what I think I'm doing for most of you is just identifying what you've already been doing and why you're right to have been doing it. You probably instinctively felt you should follow biblical precedents, right, for example. Well, there's a good reason for that. Um, and keep it up. And I hope you can see that these parameters actually flow from the Bible itself. That's something we're just inventing. And this will be more important even next week. I hope you will agree that we may indeed say that a particular point of view or practice is biblical for the reasons I've given this morning. And I just pray that God will bless us in applying these parameters as we seek to be faithful to his word. It's getting more and more difficult to do that. And one of the reasons it's getting more and more difficult to do that is not just because the world hates so much of what we have to say, but because there are professing Christians and professing churches out there who are opposing us even more. There are denominations that you could go into churches in certain denominations and say that homosexuality is a sin and be treated like a heretic. For saying it, as an unloving, cruel person, for saying it. It's going to take courage for us to follow faithfully what we're talking about here today. But we serve the same God who gave Daniel courage, that gave the Hebrew midwives courage, that gave the apostles courage. And he'll give us courage too. 
Let's pray. Holy Father, we call upon you as the our great God and Savior. You've, you've given us a, a glorious but difficult task. We to live as lights of Christ in a fallen world. But you've promised that you'll be with us. You've promised to grant us the power of your spirit. You've promised to work through us, to bear fruit through us. Lord, help us to be faithful. Do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Grant us courage, strength, love in our hearts as we proclaim your gospel to a lost and dying world. And as we seek to follow the Bible, the holy scriptures, which are our ultimate authority in all matters of faith and practice, our absolute authority, as we seek to be faithful to your word, give us wisdom and courage, I pray. And help us to be, as our Lord Jesus said, wise as serpents but harmless as doves as we seek to live for you in this crazy world in which we live. This culture that is so under judgment. We just are so grateful, Lord, that you know how when you judge the wicked to preserve the righteous in the midst of that. And we count on you to do that for us. We give you all the glory for what you do in answer to these prayers that we pray in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Phase one is complete. I thank you for your kind attention.